I'm doing a mandatory rotation here at the NPR Research Labs. It's not something we make a big deal about, but all new NPR shows are tested first on monkeys. Okay, monkeys, you've listened to three new shows, and I want to get your reactions now. So to refresh your memories, the first one was Quibble Me This, and it's hosted by Garrison Keillor's son Jason and indie star Fiona Bevan. And it's kind of a quiz show in a log cabin. (laughs) So you remember that one and you didn't like it. Okay. The next one is called Truth and Nail. The panelists are Imogen Heap, Jesse Eisenberg, Paz de la Huerta, and Michael Cera. And they compete to see who's the biggest hipster. But... (laughs) Okay. Didn't care for that one either. All right, the last one is Mars Mountain Cafe, and that's the one where every week astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson sings cabaret and Broadway songs with guests. Okay, so you didn't like any of these shows, but my real question is, should we be using monkeys this way? Shouldn't we be testing on a less evolved species like armadillos or Wall Street traders? Okay, no, I get it. Uh, Yeah, no, that's a good point. All life forms deserve respect. Well, the armadillos do, anyway. That's the kind of thing we'll be talking about today with animal rights crusader Ingrid Newkirk. And now his new weekend show is called Let's Go Commando. (laughs) I know, that's about where I am, too. Colin McEnroe. With me is Ingrid Newkirk. You probably already know the name. She's the founder of PETA. That's People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. She's visiting Hartford. We're going to talk not only about some of the issues on PETA's plate, but I'd like to just begin with the story of this organization because it's kind of a remarkable tale of the building of a grassroots organization. Ingrid Newkirk, does it go back to 1980? Do I have that right? Is that when all this began? And did it begin with just two people starting it, or did you have a big mass of followers to begin with? I don't think in 1980, which is when it started, that anybody had really heard the term animal rights. Mm -hmm. People knew about the Humane Society, and if you cared about animals, you could wander over there and help walk the dogs or something, which wasn't everybody's cup of tea, or you could give money. But if they were like me, and I was, what, in my, I suppose, 30-ish then, I can't count back now, (laughs) I had grown up caring about animals, thinking that I was kind to animals, but also eating my way through the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. I had my first fur coat when I was 19, and all those sorts of things were separated out in my mind. Then I read a book. It was Peter Singer's Mm -hmm. The Philosophy. Animal Liberation? Exactly. No, it was was Animal Liberation. I I was on a a long journey to learn about horses in Massachusetts, and I read it on the way up on the train. And it changed the way I thought about animals because it challenges you to stop thinking about just these little kindnesses and start wondering who animals are, that they are others like us, living beings like us, who just are discriminated against, treated as living hamburgers and handbags. And it really struck a chord with me, and I started to change a lot that I was doing and thought it would be nice if there was a group that could show people what happens behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. places people don't go, the slaughterhouse, the laboratory, the trap line, and so on, even behind the big top, and then do more, show them the alternatives to those things, because people need a helping hand to make a change. No one likes to change. And so Peter was founded in 1980. And and was it just a couple of people? I mean, how small was it uh, when it began and how big is it now? There were two of us and three uh, sort of 
friends who helped us out. So there were five of us, and it started in the basement of my apartment, or my apartment wasn't a, a basement apartment. We just worked from there. And then we got a case called the Silver Springs Monkey mm-hmm. Case, and this put the group, this tiny fledgling group, on the front page of the Washington Post uh, because we managed to get the evidence that allowed the police department to go and serve the first ever search and seizure warrant on a laboratory and take these monkeys out of there who were suffering so badly. It was on the national news. I think it was ABC World Tonight then. And people who cared about animals but hadn't thought they could do anything saw it and wrote to us and said those magic words, what can we do? How can we help? And so they got an earful of how they could help (laughs) in many ways, not just with animals in laboratories. We would say, well, you could consider not eating them and you could consider not wearing them and consider at that time what was difficult to do was consider not buying a shampoo or a toothpaste or a floor cleaner that was actually tested in rabbits' eyes. That That's mostly a thing of the past, not entirely, but back then it was very hard to find things you could buy that weren't tested on animals. So two people, three friends, basement apartment. Uh, where are we now? What's, what's the size and scope of PETA? Today we have about three and a half million supporters worldwide and affiliates in other countries too. We have PETA India, PETA Italy. Uh, Peter Europe, Peter Australia, uh, those sorts of things. Peter is in China now because, of course, that's where a lot of cruelty originates. The goods that are the fruits of those cruelties come into the West. People buy them here without knowing, and our job is to open eyes, show them what goes on, suggest something else to buy. Now, you've had to um, create methodologies almost that didn't exist, and and one of the things I think that was pretty obvious early on I think in the case of the Silver Spring Monkeys, was that obviously companies do not volunteer and science research facilities do not volunteer information about things that they're doing to and with animals that people might find objectionable. And sometimes even if you ask point blank, uh, it's a relatively difficult thing to find out about. So you've had to rely pretty extensively on sort of inside jobs, right? Whistleblowers. I don't remember the Silver Spring case all that vividly, but my sense was there might have been a leaked video or something like that. Or I mean, how did, how did you find out about those monkeys? That case, and you're right, I and mean, we rely very heavily. At, we're absolutely beholden to whistleblowers, bless their hearts, people who have the, the gumption to speak up and say, I'm seeing something, even if they may lose their job mm-hmm. doing it. Um, so whistleblowers are grand. But in the case of the Silver Spring Monkeys, and of course the Freedom of Information Act is invaluable, mm-hmm. although we often have to go to court because the experimenters blot out so much important information. In this Silver Spring case... Alex, who worked with me, got a job as a volunteer in the laboratory, and he brought me in, and together we would photograph, or I would keep guard outside, sometimes hiding in a big cardboard box by the dumpster, and he would take the photographs of what was happening in the laboratory. And we documented painstakingly, because I was a cruelty investigator then and a deputy sheriff, we documented exactly how long they went without food sometimes up to three days, which had nothing to do with the experiment. It just was sloppy. Um, How badly they were housed with these wires sticking out of the cages that were rusted and so on, and how infected their wounds became simply because nobody did anything when they should have to look after them medically. So we put it all together, 
and took it to the um, our evidence of photographs. We didn't have video then. Took them to the police, and the police executed the warrant. When you say uh, cruelty investigator and deputy sheriff, in other words, were you working for somebody besides PETA as a cruelty investigator? Yes, PETA was my part time or my. Uh, the thing I did after work, I was a deputy sheriff. I wanted to learn law enforcement in order to really do cruelty investigations in a much more professional way. I was working for the Washington Humane Society then, and I was the director of cruelty investigations. But there was no formal training. And I mm. thought, well, I'll become a deputy sheriff. I'll go to rookie school, which isn't like the pictures <laughs> that you see of them running down the street. Um, but we uh, seriously studied how to put evidence together and how to preserve a crime scene and all that sort of good stuff. And that stood me in good stead to put the Silver Spring Monkey case together. So uh, one senses, I mean, reading Peter's literature, just following these cases, that um, obviously it, it's primarily and really 100 percent about the animals. But there seems to be a fair amount of cloak and dagger in all this, right? I mean, are you having you know, mysterious drops of videos that people have? I mean, uh, give us a sense of, of how much of that just involves people taking risks and, and you having to put yourself uh, in, in, the, in the role, not necessarily even you specifically, but anybody from PETA putting themselves in the role kind of of, of somebody in, in an espionage thriller. It does very much sometimes because not only do people who work inside some places have to find ways to secret um, video camera equipment onto their person. And nowadays, laboratories and farms, agriculture being factory farming mostly now, are getting very, very particular. They, they sometimes make people strip and shower and then put on a uniform before they go somewhere. It's very hard to do this. So yes, people take risks. Uh, we've had our investigators run off the road. Their lives have been threatened. Uh, we've received death threats. It's quite extraordinary. We've had investigators actually trapped in a building and pinned up against the wall. But we're very grateful to anybody who takes a risk because the animals are certainly going to lose their lives and not in pleasant ways. And so it's worth it if you care about them and you see some injustice and you don't want it to carry on. So, yeah, cloak and dagger is one way. Of course, we also get video that people send us, and people find things on the Internet that are extraordinary. We've had two crush cases recently, which are sexual gratification cases using animals in crushing them to death, and somebody captured that video and sent it to us before it disappeared from the Internet. We were able to work with law enforcement authorities, and we do have... Two people sitting in jail in the Philippines and two people sitting in jail in Texas. Are there areas, whether, whether we're talking about scientific research that's done at the university level or, or parts of the world of farming or anything else we might, we might undertake, that have actually since 1980 really improved? In other words, you know, I don't know. We actually did an entire show on, on lab research that used animals, and most of the researchers I was talking to didn't strike me as exceptionally cruel people. They may have, over time, built up some indifference to the conditions of the animals, but I didn't get the feeling that they were terrible people. And, and, I, and I, I wondered if there were, if there had just been any part of this continuum where people have kind of voluntarily improved as a result of consciousness oh, yes. raising and, and whatever policing you've done. Say a little about that. Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, this is what is chilling about it. I, I hate to use the analogy, but if you read um, the book called The Nazi Doctors, which is a, a studious scientific book about 
the sociology and, and what happened and during Nazi Germany of how decent people did things that were atrocious. And, and we look. I look at my own upbringing and I see the things that I did, caring about animals but not connecting the dots and doing awful things to them because everybody did, like eating them, wearing them, and so on. I think that's the challenge is to overcome our ingrained behaviors and get us to see who animals are, that they're not commodities, and that we need to be more innovative to find other ways to conduct science. That's happening. And we do have wonderful things. I mean, there's the whole human DNA on the internet. We now have animal organs, human organs on chips. If you go to these um, cancer conferences now, you hear people talk about doing experiments without the patter of little feet. And these aren't animal rights activists. These are scientists who know that technology is a godsend to science. But yet there are places where uh, all over where there's just become a behavioral pattern and mice particularly because they're so disregarded, even though they're little mammals who obviously like a dog or me, if you burn them with a cigarette, they feel are used just cavalierly. They're cheap, they're easy to handle, they're disposable, not very many people care or think about them. And so as a matter of course, they're acquired and then they're used in all manner of experiments where there are better options. And what we see, of course, is that there is always a push to get more money to go into drug treatment programs and to take money out of these absurd experiments where we still have monkeys being given cocaine, monkeys being injected with heroin, monkeys given amphetamines. Uh, They're not uh, worthwhile, and they're a waste of money, even if you don't care about animals. But for the animals, it's horrendous. We're talking to Ingrid Newkirk. She is the founder of PETA. She's visiting Hartford right now. Uh, we'll take a little break here. We'll come back uh, with more of this conversation. I'm here with Ingrid Newkirk. She's the founder of PETA. That's People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. You must occasionally, whether you're participating on a panel discussion or a news show or something like that, I mean, we talk about how in the world of research, there are still things that would strike most people as abominations that go on. And then there are new strains of enlightenment, some of it driven by technology, some of it probably just driven by researchers kind of getting it and thinking, well, let's minimize the damage to animals. But there must be occasionally moments where you're in a conversation with somebody where there's a fundamental philosophical breakdown between the two of you. I'm I'm thinking of the the philosopher and 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 therapist Willard Galen who at one point wrote that to save the life of one human baby girl, he would not only kill 100 chimpanzees, he'd wipe out the chimpanzee species if that's what it took. That for him anyway, human life is not on an equal plane with animal life. When you're in a conversation like that, and I'm sure that wouldn't be your first one, how does that conversation go? Well, I think it can get almost religious, and and then you perhaps reach a brick wall that you can't go beyond. I think a lot of people uh, love that argument because it resonates with them. I mean, who wouldn't if you were in a lifeboat and there was you and, you know, a dog? uh, Would you save yourself or would you save the dog? Most people would save themselves. With Galen, I would always ask the question, well, if it's, it's your child, 
who you have to save. And you, would you sacrifice, if I hate that word, but would you sacrifice, you know, a thousand uh, other children to save your child? Because that is the equation. It's what matters most to me, those who are closest to me. First there's me, then there's my immediate family, then there's my village or my religion or however one relates. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge again is to break that down and say we're all in this together. It's not just white people. It's not just human beings. It's not just able-bodied people. We've had to break these things down over the years. The Obama inauguration was an amazing thing to me because I was in my office, which is on 16th Street, and people streamed down 16th Street to the mall in the White House in Washington. And I realized that day how far we had come mm -hmm. because, of course, there was Medgar Evers' wife giving the invocation. There was the first Hispanic Supreme Court Justice, Sotomayor. I think she was uh, swearing in Joe Biden. There was the first gay poet laureate or first known gay poet laureate, who knows. And there were wheelchair ramps for people with disabilities. None of that was imaginable years gone by. And, and there were people campaigning. There were people like Sojourner Truth standing up and saying, listen to me, I'm a woman. Listen to me, I'm a black woman. And white men throwing things at her and burning down her boarding house. So we have to say we can't have come as far as we need to come. We have this compassion that needs to be opened up. We, ha we have to go further. And that means not being so insular and so supremacist as to think it's just my species. We must go beyond that. It's all living beings, I think. But I worry that some of that's in our wiring, too. And, and I mean, you, you mentioned President Obama. Uh, he himself showed admirable and justifiable compassion uh, towards uh, the families of the 26 victims in Newtown, but maybe not the same level of compassion about uh, the deaths of children in, in Pakistan and or Afghanistan from U.S. drone strikes, that the, the Newtown was very real to him in a way that these things in foreign countries seemed less real. Oh, absolutely. And I think we've all got that. Every single one of us is prejudiced in some way as atrocious as it sounds to us to say it. We all have our limits of compassion, but we must push them. We can't just be satisfied with them. Certainly, you see, even with Obama, I mean, he's been pushed and pushed to consider others that he decided he politically or otherwise he wasn't going to consider because of agitation. So we agitate for animals, all animals. We're one animal among many, and say, let's break down these false barriers. You've got anthropologists now who are saying, look, this false categorization of pongids and hominids, the great apes and human beings, is just that. It isn't right. We just did it because we wanted to be special. We're all great apes. So it may be uncomfortable for us. It may be inconvenient. It may have have us changing behaviors, and no one wants to change anything, basically. That's, that's a part of us, too. But I do believe that we've got it in us to keep thinking, working it out, looking for principles. Are we against injustice, or are we just against injustice to those we relate to? Are we nonviolent, or just nonviolent when it's convenient to us? So I do believe we just have to keep going. So uh, let's take the, the disparity uh, or, or disjuncture that we just explored and turn it around a different way. So you were talking earlier about how uh, PETA has had to internationalize and actually have 
chapters around the world in other countries. So if I tried to open tomorrow in the United States a fabric company or I don't even know, a textile kind of company or whatever it was you'd call it where I was trying to get fur by ripping it off living rabbits. By every two or three months, I'd come to these rabbits in their cages and tear the fur off them while they're still alive. No one would let me do that. The minute it became – at least, I don't know, maybe you could tell me a horror story <laughs> about here in the United States. But my sense is anyway, I wouldn't be doing this for very long. You know, somebody – Peter would get hold of me and, and I'd, I'd be in trouble. But that's happening all the time in China, right? So in China, the, the idea of a rabbit in, in ter- screaming and in terrible pe- pain while you're ripping fur, angora fur – we should say that's where ang- this angora fur is coming from – is less troubling to the Chinese culture – so what about that? And how, how do you philosophically process that difference between us and them? There are huge cultural differences, obviously. And animals haven't been on the radar, so to speak, of the Chinese very much. Cruelty to animals is a novel concept. And in fact, there isn't even a law yet on the books that prohibits any cruelty to animals in China. We're working on that now. And you're right, that Angora footage that we got in China Uh, where we had to sneak into an angora farm and pretend to be a buyer and see these rabbits actually screaming. It's on our website. It's changed retailers in this country. Were we to do that here, I think you're right, if people knew what was going on. But often people don't know what's going on. Perhaps the best example is who we eat. And I say that because an animal isn't a what, it's a who. Mm. You go to the Philippines, where we have a little office, and people eat dogs, Mm. they eat monkeys. And people here write to Peter all the time and say, why aren't you doing something about people eating dogs in the Philippines or Vietnam or wherever? And we say, well, it's a cultural thing. What we're trying to do is suggest that all over the world, We don't just stop eating those animals we're familiar with, but we become familiar with the fascinating wonder of all these animals and their sensitivity to pain and suffering, their fear. And we say, all right, I'm not going to eat cows or chickens because if you go to a slaughterhouse, and you don't have to, anybody with common sense knows that a slaughterhouse isn't a place to bring the family for a picnic. It's not a nice place. If you go to a slaughterhouse or you imagine what happens in the slaughterhouse, you know that the animals are deeply afraid. They try to turn around on the slaughter line. They try to flee. They call out, and yet they are dying as badly, if not in a worse way, than some of the animals who are killed in other countries where there isn't mechanized slaughter. They just happen to be dogs. You know... um Emerson said that we've we've distanced the slaughterhouse from the dinner table as much as we possibly can. And so you make an interesting point, which is that and we could talk a little bit more about other cultures too because I want to come back to that. But here in this culture, one of the ways we deal with this is just by not knowing about it uh, and by almost intentionally or passively not knowing about it. It makes a, a different, difficult marketing challenge for PETA to say, oh, well, come to our website where you can see fur being torn off of live rabbits. Well, there's a whole segment of society that doesn't want to see that, doesn't want to know about it, doesn't want to deal with it. So a certain number of people are ethically motivated enough maybe to come to PETA.org and say, okay, these are the problems. 
problems. And you go there and it's overwhelming too. It's it's orcas and it's monkeys being shipped in, in planes and it's it's rabbits with their fur being torn off. But what do you do about the – I'm guessing 90 <laughs> percent of, of American society that just says, I just don't want to know about that stuff. I just want to go yeah. to Chuck E. Cheese and order a pizza and not worry what the topping is. Yeah, don't show me the cruelty because I like my steak too much. And mm. I would say, look, you're a thinking animal. Shape up. You know, be an adult. Does that work um, when you say that, though? Um, I actually don't usually say that. I think that. <laughs> but I, uh, one of the things that we try to do is make it easy. We try to make it convenient. We try to make it palatable, for, uh, and it is palatable, to show that it's easy to be vegan. This isn't a huge hurdle. You can start, for example, just vegan. Most people don't eat that many different things. They think they do. But if you work out what you eat in a week or two weeks, you find that you're really recycling the same. You may have lasagna. You may have a stew. You may have burritos. You may have a hamburger. There aren't that many dishes. So you can start out by just deciding, all right, I don't want to be party to paying somebody to slit an animal's throat. Could be my dog could be a wonderful animal, I don't know. I'm going to start to veganize one set of meals in, in a, a day a week. Uh, that's that meatless Monday thing, of course. I say just chuck out the cheese, chuck out anything that comes from an animal. And the same with clothing. You don't have to throw off what's on your back. But we say if next time you're going out to buy something, look at this fabulous array of fabrics, of materials. There's everything you could imagine. You can look glamorous. You can be practical. Nobody going up Everest uh, wears real fur anymore. It's damp. It's heavy. It's, and so look at all your fabulous choices and live as if you're a 21st century person who has a conscience. Come on, let's do this together. Maybe I can help you. Maybe the website can help you. We've got recipes. We've got everything, alternatives to dissection, entertainments. You name it, it's there. Um, another thing that you've tried to do, there's an old saying in Madison Avenue or what used to be called Madison Avenue in, in advertising, sex sells. I can't remember all these things well enough to quote chapter and verse to you, but but you can. You've actually tried to use sex and sexuality to advance the cause of veganism and, and not using fur and things like that. I mean, first of all, give people a sense of, of what those campaigns have been like. Well, we started with I'd rather go naked than wear fur, which mm. actually was very modest when it began. It was a person in a bodysuit who couldn't see anything, and it's sort of gone from there as society has changed. We were lamenting a little earlier today um, at a lunch that it's so hard to find uh, – public radio does a wonderful job, PBS, but when you see how discourse has suffered – it's not as if you can put a long argument before somebody or show them all the facts. Nowadays, it's just a few words or an image. And sex definitely sells. I mean, anybody, open the paper, see the underwear ads, turn on the television, sex sells. So we use it because our celebrities are very brave sometimes and will stand behind something. I think more of it's titillation than actual sexuality because you can probably see more nudity at the beach than you can in our ads, mm -hmm. but not always. We have Pam Anderson, who, of course, is a real head-turner, mm. and I always say, you know, behind that large chest, she has an even bigger heart. But she is uh, one of our pinups, and Kim Basinger has been one of our pinups. Lots and lots of young stars. We now have the NFL players and the basketball players who are doing I'd rather ink than mink, which means they've got these uh, massive tattooed bodies and they strip down and 
might hold a football or something over their naughty bits and say, I, I won't wear fur because fur, of course, has become a big issue again because it's so cheap these days. But you've gotten a little bit of pushback at times, right, uh, from the idea of even for the cause of the angels uh, using beautiful naked women. Uh, there have been people who said, well, that's just another problem, the objectification of women that you're now using to solve your equally pressing problem that's <laughs> more morally age or urgent to you, right? I find that a disingenuous argument mostly, but also an earnest argument on the part of certain feminists. You know, there are all these waves of feminism, and I certainly marched uh, for women, what, 50-some years ago now. I'm 64, I think in one of the first marches in London. I believe in, in a woman's right to have equal treatment in all things that are relevant. I definitely know that these are sexual, not sexist that nobody pays any woman to take off her clothes. And I frankly find it so offensive that somebody, whether a woman or a man, is saying, get your clothes back on, cover your knees. You know, why are you showing your breasts? It's up to the woman if she wants to strip. Let her strip. Stop just being a Puritan to her. You used to be fathers and boyfriends and uh, would say, you know, don't go out dressed like that. A woman can now do what she wants, and she doesn't need another woman or a man telling her to cover up. All our women feel empowered, I think, in the way that the Lady Godiva time, the Lady Godiva felt empowered, is that we can use our bodies as political instruments. And now it's not uh, sexism. I just, and I'm 64, and this is, has nothing to do with sex, just stripped off in the Smithfield meat market completely and hung from a hook next to the pig carcasses to show that my body looks the same color, is about the same size of, as the decapitated pigs. And I think it was a very compelling shoot that said we're all the same. You know, it, it would matter to me if you took my life for a sandwich and it matters to them. They don't go quietly to the knife. And that was, that was a very good photo shoot. I feel very good about that shoot. And I don't care if people think, oh, look at that old woman hanging there. It's, it's nudity. That's all it is. Nudity. Get over it. Okay. Apparently, I have to go back to the PETA website because I, I missed that one. All right. <laughs> we so, can't even put that on the oh, PETA in America. No. <laughs> all right. So uh, we'll take a quick break. We're talking to Ingrid Newkirk. She's the founder uh, of PETA. She's here in Hartford. We'll be back after this. I saw you laying on the Okay, monkeys, how do you like the show so far? <laughs> That's a good point. Testing the animal rights show on animals kind of misses the mark, doesn't it? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Anna Novak. Katie Talarski is our executive producer, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Brody Jenner. For show pages, articles, and a video of the Faith Middleton Show staff reading the Pork Chop Cookbook out loud to baby pigs, visit WNPR.org. Tomorrow, the nose can't believe that anything could ever go wrong with Hot Pockets. And now, back to Colin. We're back with Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA. She's visiting Hartford. So I want to come back to you for a second, because I know you want to make it about the animals, but let's make it about you for just a second. So at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about sort of being 
pretty unreconstructed. You know, you were eating any animal you felt like eating and maybe even owned a few fur garments. Uh, And then you read uh, Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, uh, and it changed everything. I read that book, too, and I didn't become Ingrid Newkirk. I mean, it it did change things for me and it affected my outlook on things. And then I read John Robbins's Diet for a New America, and that changed some things, too. But I'm not living the kind of ethical life that you are. So what's the difference between you and me? I mean, the difference, there's, there's something about you that predates the reading of, of Animal Liberation, something about the person that you are. If you were to try to name the forces inside you or the childhood experiences or the parental mentoring, or, or where does it come from? Why did you read this one book and then suddenly dedicate your life to living a pretty extreme version of animal advocacy? Oh, I don't know, but I do have some theories. Uh, When I was growing up, I went to India when I was seven and a half, and it was a different India than the India today, which is all modernized and everybody's walking around with a cell phone. And I was, in some villages, the first white person that the other children or villagers had seen. And I remember one day that I was actually poked with a stick by a little boy who just didn't know what I was exactly. But it was difficult when people didn't understand your language and you didn't understand theirs. And I think that later, when I read some of the philosophy about animal rights, I was able to relate to it in a personal way that I know what that feels like to some extent. But I did have other experiences, and experiences are always part of this makeup, I'm sure, Because I was a law enforcement officer, Mm -hmm. and when I was um, still wearing fur, I went out on a call behind a 7-Eleven or something, and there I found that kids had set steel traps, and there was a fox and there was a squirrel, each in a a steel trap. The fox was was still alive, eyes as big as saucers, hair standing up on all over his body, afraid what I was going to do as I approached, and the squirrel was dead. And it so happened that my very first coat was made of about a 100 squirrels. It was this arty coat that I had acquired in in England, a sort of Ginger Rogers coat. Nobody has a squirrel coat. And my first fur collar was a fox fur collar. And here were these two animals. And I thought, oh, my God, how did the animals who went into my garments die? Where did they come from and what happened? So I'd had that experience. And then... I was called out to a farm where the people had moved away, trashed the place. I had to prosecute them for various things, but they had left a little pig behind. And this little pig had been there for a long time, was cut up on some liquor bottles, and I had to hold his head up and take him to the pump and try to put water in his mouth because he couldn't stand or sit up himself. And that night I remember going home and thinking, oh, what have I got for dinner? before the age of microwaves. Mm. And I thought, oh, good, I defrosted those pork chops. Mm. And then, of course, that penny dropped. And I thought, well, I'm prosecuting one person for cruelty to a pig, but who am I paying to be cruel to a pig? And so bit by bit, I was very slow in learning. I stopped doing some things because I just didn't think they were right to support. And then Singer's book really tied it together for me. If you were to go back to India, I think you could probably still find places where there are Jainists who who will walk around with, with cloths in front of their mouths and noses so that they don't accidentally inhale and kill bugs. 
Um, so that's how far this can play out. I don't, I don't think you have one of those cloths. And I'm wondering how it is for you now where I'll tell you just a quick personal story, which is a few nights ago. I was driving to the gym. It was dark and I wasn't speeding or anything like that. And suddenly there was a duck standing on the road right in front of me. and I hit the duck uh, and I felt terrible about this. I'm not somebody who wants to go around hitting ducks. And in fact, you're the first person I've told this to. <laughs> I didn't tell my significant <laughs> other when I got home. I haven't told anybody I work with. So this story is going to be told on the radio apparently for the first time. I felt terrible about it. I went back to see if by any chance the duck had made it, the duck had not made it. This must happen to you once in a while. And here you are dedicating your life to sparing animals from the depredations of people. But just the way we live, things like that happen, right? Yes. And I'm glad the duck died outright. I think that's a comfort. And that's unlike the animals. If we eat eat animals, Mm -hmm. it's unlike how they're dying because they don't die outright. And you think people think of the slaughterhouse, but they think of they, they fail to think of, say, the transport truck in all weather mm-hmm. and the animals' fright, fright on it and how they're factory farmed and how they're yanked out of their pens and their crates and stuffed in it. That's what I want people to think about. An accident is an accident, and you can't help it. And thank goodness you went back and looked because some people don't even do that. And some people actually will speed up if a duck is walking her babies across the road. We get calls. They'll just speed up and run into them. So... I think it's the things that when we realize that we can stop that kind of thing or worse than that by just making a choice, a simple choice in what we choose to eat or or buy, that's the most important thing to me. But I live in the real world, and the real world is a pretty cruel place (laughs) for human beings too. Um, There are all sorts of injustices. Uh, There's still child slavery and sex slavery and discrimination and so, so many wars that are unjust. And what we do to animals is one thing we can actually control. We can actually stop that violence. We can actually stop that domination, that exploitation. We may not be able to go to the Sudan and and stop somebody from having an arm cut off, but we can go to the supermarket and make a nonviolent choice. And it does matter to a living being who is frightened. We're talking to Ingrid Newkirk. She's the founder of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. She is visiting Connecticut on this day of our conversation, uh, and we're excited to have her here. Just to sort of stay within this philosophical mode that we're in for just a moment. Uh, going on the PETA website is instructive, but it's, it's really horrifying too. And, and just looking at some of the things that you've talked about here, and there's more that we can we can talk about, and, and it, it you almost seems like with the passing of, of a month or, or two, one learns about something that one has never thought about before, that the orcas uh, that we see at SeaWorld are, are really you know, in this terrible, terrible situation and terrible state of mind. I think a lot of people just like to go visit an attraction like that and not w- worry about it. But I mean, it's almost like looking at the PETA website, it's like looking at one of Bruegel's or, or Hieronymus Bosch's depictions of hell. It's just like every little square you look at has like this awful thing in it. I mean, you were sort of alluding to this, that the world's a very tough and brutal place. And the brutality is being dished out by humans. What's your vision of humankind? I mean, you believe we can be better, I guess. I think we have a lot of compassion within us. We're not challenged to use it. And I believe that it's easily strangled. It's sort of like a weed that climbs up a, a lovely tree. Is We're distracted by so many things. I have a, a picture of some people crying. They're just ordinary people who are in a shopping mall, and they're they're in tears, and they look really upset. And it comes from somebody actually took one of our videos. It might have been Blackfish, the, the thing about SeaWorld, mm, yeah. which is so compelling. But I believe it was Meet Your Meat or one of the McCartney 
glass walls videos about slaughterhouses, they set up a little video monitor in the mall and they started to show this film. People who were going about meeting friends, buying shoes, having a latte, happened to catch a glimpse of this and burst into tears. I believe that we don't want to be cruel, most of us. I mean, there are people who don't empathize with anybody. They're just all about the me. Mm -hmm. But for most of us, if we are shown, and perhaps we we have to be shown many times, Mm -hmm. but we have to break through this veneer of, well, everybody does it, and say, well, actually, you have a choice. You're a thinking person. You've got choices. You're in a privileged lifestyle here. You're in the United States. You can do all these things. Here is your choice. Do you want to be cruel? Do you want to be kind? And it can actually become very simple. Is you can just say, if the animals are involved with it, whether it's a coat you're buying, a pair of shoes, it's a snack, I don't want it. I'm going to see what else there is. And that is where I believe that we have to push ourselves a bit because nobody, the advertisers on television, mm. every five minutes you're being asked to eat McNuggets or whatever you're being asked to eat, some, something. Things that are going to make you fat and sick. Oh, yes. No question. I, yes, absolutely. Fat and sick and, and die prematurely and clog your arteries and the works. But just do it for selfish reasons, if you like. Don't eat animals. But when you know that somebody has a reflection of life in them, just as you have, if you're looking back, that and you can have you have this enormous power to either allow them to live or kill them, and to let them suffer or not. And it's as simple as where you put the money out of your purse or your checkbook or your credit card. It's as simple as that. Then just at least look at your options and push yourself to make the world less cruel because you do have that power. Has it gotten easier? One of the methods that you had early on, obviously, was to talk to individuals exactly that way and then tell the gap, tell North Face, tell Land's End, tell we don't want this kind of thing. Now, I'm assuming sometimes PETA actually will engage directly. It's like, let's cut out the middleman. You and I, uh, Ingrid Newkirk and and Land's End, let's have a conversation about this stuff. I, I would have Guess that in 1980 or even 1990, they tell you to go pound sand. Now, will, can you just get on the phone to them and talk to them about this sometimes? Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. But we certainly always try. We always go behind the scenes. We always reach the top of the corporation if we can and say, look, let's show you what we've got. But let's also suggest another way to go. Because we do know all about pleather. We know all about synthetics. We know all about wool that comes from somewhere else. We know all about these things because we make our business it our business to do. So yes, and some of the corporations are super and they will meet with us right away. Others just lock the door, go away, and that's when we do, we use social media. We uh, do the uh, activist alerts and they're going to hear from thousands upon thousands of people in a very short time and that may make them reconsider meeting with us. Let's talk about one more area. Um, we kind of alluded it to it a little bit, talking about orcas, talking about SeaWorld. So uh, we eat animals. uh, We make clothes out of animals. We use animals in scientific research. Uh, Sometimes companies use animals in in testing of cosmetics. Another way that we, quote unquote, use animals is to entertain us, uh, whether it's at SeaWorld or the circus. or So there's been a conversation. uh, The SeaWorld conversation is maybe a little bit newer to a lot of people, partly because of the documentary Blackfish. But this conversation about the circus has been going on for a while. How's that shaping up these days? Well, we were very lucky. A couple of years ago, I think we really took it into an, 
uh, another trajectory with someone who was dying of cancer who worked for the, for the Ringling Brothers Circus. And he had been part of the group that trained baby elephants, which, of course, they take them away from their mothers. Their mothers love them. Their mothers don't ever want to part company with them. And they chain them. They tie them down. They beat them with bullhooks and electric prods. But we know this, but we didn't have any photographs of it. This man had all the photographs you would ever need to show how cruel it is. He had promised his wife that before he died, he would come to Peter and he would share those photographs with us, and he did. And we were able to give them to the newspapers, put them on the website. We used them in demonstrations. And it's quite extraordinary how people relate to those babies and their mothers. And they realize perhaps for the first time as they're going into the show or they're thinking of buying a ticket that this is not right, that Elephants belong somewhere else, not wearing a stupid piece of clothing on their head and standing on their head, not in shackles. And so we we send bullhooks out to the news station sometimes so they can touch it, they can feel the weight of it, they can feel the hook of it. We show them how the animals are hooked with that object, which is like a fireplace poker behind the knees, behind the ears where you can't see the scars. And we show them the shackles. Uh, I was just at the Mark Twain house and they had shackles there from the from his time when there were slaves and he grew up and it, it says there you know not thinking there was anything wrong with slavery and i think people going to the circus don't realize there's anything wrong some of them with shackling the elephants you have to do that to control them no you don't if you shackled a dog and left him there by all fours shackled where he couldn't take a, a step in any direction People would go nuts. Elephants go nuts, and they don't want to be in that situation. And now people are seeing it. Circus attendance is plummeting, just as SeaWorld attendance is plummeting. People are dumping their shares in SeaWorld. People are saying no. They don't want to sponsor the circus when it comes to town. You can have Cirque du Soleil, and you have human performers, and they're marvelous, and they're paid, and they get to go home at the end of the day, or they quit if they don't want to be there anymore. The elephants, the tigers, those animals are doomed. They don't want to be there. They're, everything is unnatural, uncomfortable, painful, and frightening, and they want to go home. You've been doing this for 34 years now by my count, and that's 34 years on the front lines of this stuff. So once in a while I, I get worried about this or motivated or my consciousness gets raised. Maybe I'll look at one of these videos or read an article. This is your life. Assuming you haven't gone crazy, how have you kept from, go- <laughs> how have you kept from going crazy? Big assumption there, yeah, sure. Colin. But you, you seem like not a horribly bitter person or – I mean, do you go to church? Is there something that <laughs> – some place you get yeah. some comfort? I get comfort from seeing young people who get it mm. because I think youth is what has led us into the environmental movement. Young people see injustice more clearly. They haven't been jaded They haven't been turned by business interests so much. And I see all these kids who have been raised vegetarian or vegan or are going vegetarian or vegan who would no more wear fur or leather than fly to the moon, who don't want to dissect. They find cutting up a cat's eyeball the most revolting thing, which it is, that they've ever heard of. And they are demanding everything, a change for the animals. And that gives me great hope. But Also, I look at our victories. If you see mannequins in a car commercial on television, remember they used to smash baboons and pigs into a wall. Peter campaigned all over the world, and there isn't one car company that does that anymore, even though they said they had to at the time. It's all gone. 
Out of a hundred nights, uh, how many do you? How many of those nights do you go to bed happy? How many of those nights do you go to bed sad? I try not to think before I go to sleep of what I know uh, because I see so much that's so sad. And my biggest worry in winter in getting to sleep is the dogs who are outside on chains who have maybe a tin barrel or a board up against the fence for shelter. And Peter has a program. It's in North Carolina and lower Virginia in the impoverished areas of the states to try to provide uh, good houses for them and straw bedding and to try to get them off those chains, to try to ban chaining. That's my challenge at night is to go to sleep warm in my bed knowing that they're out there. Well, um, and, and we're here in the midst of, of the Olympics. Uh, obviously, what un- maybe what unfolded in Sochi didn't come as a surprise to you, but certainly as the Olympics began and we began reading about um, these stray dogs and what was being done. First of all, was that something that you – did you sort of know that was coming? Yes, it happened in Korea. It happened in India, of all places. It, it, it happens whenever someone's preparing for a major event like that, the country takes drastic measures. We are lucky that there is a billionaire now in Sochi who is rounding up some of the dogs and trying to keep them safe, and that there are a lot of people all over the world who are outraged by this, just as, of course, they're outraged by the treatment of gays in Russia. I mean, Russia has a little ways to go. Ingrid Newkirk, it's been great to visit with you. I hope your time in Hartford causes you to lay your head on the pillow tonight in a relatively calm and restful state of mind. <laughs> Thank you so much. The future looks bright ahead. Don't be cruel to who heart is true. I don't want no other love. Baby, it's just you I'm thinking of. Don't stop thinking of me. Don't make me feel this way. Come on over here and love me. You know what I wanted you to say. Don't be cruel. I'm Kion Wolf. Okay, monkeys, one last test about a new game called Blissful Birds. The objective is to open as many populated bird cages as possible while successfully restocking the empty ones with their human captors. Okay, I'll write down enthusiastic yes.